Welcome to the Just Write Show, where you'll explore the world of the written word, from books to blogs, sales copy to screenplays, emails to essays, and everything in between. You'll discover the tips, tricks, and tactics the most successful writers in the world use every day. And now, here's your host, Travis Cody. This is Travis Cody, and welcome to another episode of the Just Right Show. Today with me is master comedian Jerry Corley. Jerry was born into show business and was in front of the camera by the age of 18 months. Well, considering it was a diaper rash commercial, it wasn't his front that was in front of the camera. Corley's toured doing live stand-up for nearly 30 years, playing nearly every venue imaginable, from a small fundraiser in the basement of a Catholic church to opening for Brooks and Dunn in front of 50,000 people. Corley's also toured with Nickelback, Eddie Money, Toto, and Willie Nelson. Behind the camera, he spent eight years as a writer for The Tonight Show with Jay Leno and has written and executive produced the motion picture Stretch, which starred Chris Pine, Ray Liotta, Jessica Alba, and Patrick Wilson. Currently, you can find Jerry running the world's first and only stand-up comedy school called the Stand-Up Comedy Clinic in Burbank, where he teaches the art and science behind writing comedy, as well as performing for major corporations like John Hancock, Kaiser, Permanente, and Charles Schwab. Jerry, thanks for being on the show today. Travis, thanks for having me, man. I'm so cheerful to speak with you about the world of comedy because it is such a mystery to so many people. So one of the things that obviously you know me, I've done stand-up comedy a little bit, and there's lots of myths around stand-up comedy. The, my favorite one being that you can't teach comedy. Let's talk about this for a minute. Give me, give me the Jerry Corley mm. philosophy on teaching comedy. Well, first of all, it's um, the idea is like, you know, and that's one of my favorite. Like, you can't teach comedy. The, uh, the thing is, uh, you're born like, with it. You're naturally funny or you're not. Yeah. So I love that line. You're born with it. You know, like babies, <laughs> babies are popping out of the womb going, hey, is this thing on? You know, you call that a birth canal. That's not happening. Right. So we learn through exposure and experience. If you take any of the comics that seem to be naturally funny and you talk to them and ask them what their upbringing was like, and you get into details, you realize they had some exposure to comedy, right? Jerry Seinfeld, uh, when, their parent, when his parents was getting into, were getting a new television, he uh, beg, uh, convinced them to give them the old television, put it in his room, and he says, I watched as much comedy as I could. Eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours a day, I'd be watching whatever comedy I could get, and just, he watched it. So that exposure, um, you know, gave him an ability, right? So once you start, like I listen to Carlin, Carlin albums, not once, but a hundred times mm. and uh, that and Richard Pryor, right? So I was, I had a, a knack for it. Now would start doing bits from Carlin and Richard Pryor and Jerry Seinfeld did the same thing. Yeah. So I listened to almost everything. I only had access to Bill Cosby albums. Mm -hmm. And so when I started doing comedy, almost all of the comedy I did, it wasn't one liners or whatever. Everything I did was story based. And I was like, why do I do story based? I'm like, well, all of my comedy experience had been somebody who just told stories. Right. And, and you know, so if we went in and analyzed Cosby's stuff, we'd see where the stories pay off and where they don't pay off. And there's and they pay off when I say pay off. I mean, where the laugh happens. Right. So and the laugh happens for a reason. There's a reason we laugh. And if we don't know why we laugh, we can't figure out how to make somebody laugh. So we got to know why first. And that's what I, I, when I met George Carlin and George Carlin said to me, I know with 98% accuracy, a joke is funny before I step on stage. 
And I said, how do you know that? He said, because the joke contains all the elements necessary for it to be funny. And I said, what are those elements? And he said, you're going to have to learn those on your own, kid. <laughs> then after a glass of wine and a painkiller, which was his, his drug of choice at the time, he said, he kind of mellowed a little bit. And he said, I think the reason I say that is because instinctively I know what they are, but I can't verbalize it. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could figure out what they are and then tell the world. And I took that as a command. And uh, Carlin <laughs> commanded you to spread the cheer of comedy. You know, yeah, man. And it's like, I, uh, geez, I was one of those kids that, you know, at five years old, I had to take apart my toys to figure out how they worked. Mm -hmm. Why does this do it this way? Why does it work? Why does it work? So when comedy, when I was doing comedy, and it sort of happened by accident, I was an actor, right? And in my 20s and 18, 19, I was booking a lot of commercials because I had this great hair, head of red hair. And then at like 25, 26, it started to recede and I stopped getting bookings. <laughs> and one of my casting directors, who's a, a terrific lady, she said, Jerry, we love you, but we don't know where to put you right now because you have a baby face and a receding hairline and that doesn't sell beer. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? So basically you're saying I'm Ron Howard. Yep. Yeah, Ron Howard started to recede and he still had that baby face. So he went into directing and, um, and I was like, uh, so I had to, I thought I had to find a way to work without when I wasn't working. Cause my dad, I saw him go through the ups and downs of acting. And so, um, and that's for the audience explain who your dad was again and what his big claim of fame was. My dad was an actor, uh, for Broadway actor, television actor, movie actor. Uh, and he, uh, w his first claim to fame was a pace picante sauce commercial <laughs> that was just people love they got darling we're gonna have to shut you down and that became a line people would see him and start quoting the line then he was uh on murphy brown uh the the series on cbs right for about 10 years and that kind of was an okay run for an actor i yeah. guess be on a yeah. show for 10 years he and my mom were set for life after that and it was so neat to see that him go through that journey mm of ups and downs, the series gets canceled, this gets, you know, uh, he gets another series that gets canceled, then finally hits the Murphy Brown series. And, um, you know, he's, his contract is that he gets paid, nobody gets paid more than, uh, uh, he gets parody with, you know, people except for Candace Bergen. And um, even- What character um, did he play on Murphy Brown? He, he played Phil the bartender. Hey there, Murphy. So that's my quick impression of him. <laughs> And I got, um, that's where I, I was exposed to do, you know, I pitched to them that I do warm up for them. At first they passed on me, but then they, they booked me in a, in a tight jam. They needed somebody, their warm up person was, their plane was delayed coming out of a stormy uh, Seattle or stormy um, St. Louis airport. She couldn't make it. They, they called me last minute. I went in and I did the warm up spot and um, they, uh, they were like, who is the warm up? This audience is hot. And then like this, uh, this guy, Henry um, Johnson, who was the uh, head of distribution at Warner Brothers at television, he walked in, he goes, he came, introduced himself to me and he basically said, uh, I, you know, you got the job because that other warm up is a dead fish. <laughs> you know, he kind of had this James Earl Jones voice to him. And, you know, I was like, well, it's like, I wouldn't say that, but, uh, um, but they liked what I did. And so I was doing that and then got, um, warm up on wings. So now how did you learn comedy going along? Obviously you're doing acting. So when did you start getting into doing warm up and doing, were you just, were you again, naturally sort of 
funny at this? Well, or did yeah, you... you know, I was a I was a funny kid, um, but I didn't I mean, know how to step on stage. Hair, so you, right, you have to be. You got to <laughs> defend yourself. Um, early on, what happened was um, there was a commercial. One of the things I started to do is I was I hung out with this kid named Andy Majesic. And he was my, uh, my best friend in eighth grade. And he was just a funny guy. He'd hear words and then spin them, do a double entendre play in class and yell out something and get a laugh. And I was like, man, I was thinking the same thing, but he's saying it, mm. he's getting a laugh. So then I started saying, we were in both opposite corners of the room. So drive the teachers crazy, but they were always laugh, right? And uh, we were good students, we were A, a plus students. So um, that that's how that, and I, so he kind of gave me that first exposure to double entendre. And then I started to use that more regularly in my, in my life. Cause I was like, this is getting me attention. Then I would walk through the hallways and people would always yell at me, Hey, Jerry, what's the story? Because there was this local commercial that ran constantly in New York where this guy <laughs> would be standing on a blank stage in a t-shirt and a, and a hard hat. And they'd yell off this off stage, go, Hey, Jerry, what's the story? And he'd just launch into this diatribe. He'd go, the story is you come to JGE with a rate maker model unit number you want to buy. You show it your union, a civil service card at the door and you're in because JGE is not open to the general public, only to union members and their families. And then they'd yell, so that's the story. And he'd go, that's the story. And he'd lean back and his t-shirt would come up and show his belly button, <laughs> his fat belly. And, and that's, that commercial ran constantly. Um, so... I would always get kind of irritated when people said, Hey, Jerry, what's the story? Then I memorized the commercial. <laughs> so when they said, Hey, Jerry, what's the story? I go, the story is you come to JGE with the rate maker model unit number you want to buy. You show us your union and civil service card at the door and you're in because JGE is not open to the general public, only to union members and their families. And then somebody would play along and yell out. So that's the story. That's the story. <laughs> and I'd lift up my shirt. And I started doing that in the cafeteria. People would go, watch this. Hey, Jerry, what's the story? <laughs> and I'd be on the, the story. You're like a puppet on a string. Hey, watch this guy. Man. Dance monkey. And they started dance. La laughing. And I was like, that's so, yeah, exactly. That's so powerful. They're laughing. You know, and it took the power out of what they were, they were doing it to sort of make fun of you. Like yeah. make fun of me. So then when I turned it around, now years later, when I was doing mics and I first went out to New York, when I was first getting out there and trying stuff, I went to East Side Comedy on Long Island. And it was owned by a guy named Richard Minervini. And he said, um, how do you want me to introduce you, Jerry? And I said, I want you to go out there and I want you to say, this guy just got in from California. His name is Jerry. That's it. That's it. <laughs> it's important that I end on Jerry though. Yes. Okay. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, this guy, uh, he just got in from California. Uh, please hello, say hello to Jerry. And I come up there, I go, my name is Jerry. Hey, Jerry, what's the story? Somebody yelled out and they all laughed. And I went, the story is you come to JGE with the right man. I go through the whole thing. They burst out into a laugh and then somebody goes, so that's the story. And I go, that's the story. And I raised my shirt and they applauded. So now, you got like a joke decade after run that, off of that one commercial. What a callback, right? <laughs> And then, you know, the, the, the owner of the club was like, oh, my God, you knew they were going to do that? I said, he goes, how did you know they were going to do that? I said, because they did it all my life. <laughs> and they were like, wow. And he just booked me spots after that. That was the first intro to that. But, you know, I had to know why it worked, you know, and it worked because it was a callback because it's recognition and recognition is the laughter trigger. 
you know, and it's also a, a structure, observation, recognition. So people laugh at stuff they recognize, you know, like if you bring up something that from their childhood and you say it, like my mom always used to say, you know, Jerry, keep your voice down. You're going to wake your father. And she'd say it loud enough to wake, wake my father. And people laugh at that because they've experienced the same thing, you know. So when you say stuff that um, my dad used to always sit there in his chair and he'd call out uh, stuff based on noises in the house, like hear, hear the doorbell and he goes, somebody's at the door, you know, and you, you'd hear, then you, a phone would ring and he goes, phone. And I was like, you, that, those are the only two appliances that might, you, you would yell out what it is, you know, you'd never like hear a noise in the, in the, in the freezer and go ice maker. You never would do that. It was just always had to do with the phone and the door. And people would laugh at that because it's recognizable, you know, and you could take the, even though you take what people see all the time, break it down into its little minutia and discuss it. And people respond to it. Like you ever watch a guy wait for a bus, you know, they'll be standing on a curb that's seven inches high. They'll be looking down the street, looking for a 16 foot tall bus. And they're looking, they don't see the bus. So they step off the curve, immediately losing seven inches, walk a few feet out into the street, and then they raise up on their toes about two inches, losing a total of about five inches of, of, of a position. And to look for, hey, look, if you can't see the bus from up there, that's seven inches up, you're not going to see the bus from down there. But we see this all the time, and we'll laugh at the re-explanation of it. Because it's, we've recognized it. And what a coincidence that he's talking about something I've seen a bunch of times, but I never thought about it that way. Mm. That's what, so you know, with high odds, that's going to get a laugh because people have seen it. Right. So now there came a point in your career where you, you got very serious about comedy and you, you did something that I, I haven't heard of any other comedian doing, which is you went out and tracked down a top comedian and hired them to mentor you. Yeah. So this is what happened. You know, this is actually my, my dad at work. So I started writing jokes and I went to a class, right? At first and I went to a class and I, the class was good. It gave me, it gave me an idea. It opened up the idea that, wait a second, you can actually write jokes. You can actually, there's a struct, there's a formula to write jokes. And one of the formulas what, that I was taught was set up an assumption, shatter the assumption, right? So you create an expectation. Now I've learned so much more about how that works and why, you know, it's amazing that it's almost like the, that's why magicians are good because they know how the brain works and they know a human being can't multitask and they can only keep, and we're also very linear and our brain's evolution of our brain is it's designed for us to create acute expectations. So that's why we finish sentences. That's why we hear a phrase we've heard and we're already thinking of the ending before we even say the ending. So we know that's going to happen. You create a scenario where you know somebody knows, can picture the situation, knows what the situation is, but then you switch it at the last minute. Then you've got, you've got them. Like, you know, I was in a hotel uh, in uh, Vegas a while back and I remember the first time I was doing, the first time I ever went to Vegas for, to do comedy and my wife called in the morning and she's like, how was your first night in Vegas? I go, amazing. And it's about 7.30. I only got a few hours sleep, a little groggy. And I hear banging on the door. And I go, oh, damn it. And she goes, what? I go, housekeeper's banging on the door. I got to get up and let her out. And she says, that's not funny. <laughs> and I go, of course it is, right? <laughs> uh, so I did it that night at the, at, the, at the show. And it got a big laugh. And because of what I'm doing is I'm, saying this to her, I get this picture in mind. Oh, she's going to think I'm going to let 
open up the housekeeper and let her in. I'm going to say, let her out and just change it at the last second. So I did that. And, but she thought I actually had the housekeeper in there all night and that's not nice. <laughs> so, and then, but she would do that with a lot of jokes eventually started saying that's not funny. And then I do it at the show and it get a laugh. So I divorced her. Um, <laughs> true story because it's like, wait a second, if you're going to have me questioning who I am, then that's not good. Right. So, you know, it didn't help that she was already banging her, her accountant. Uh, but uh, that's another story. But I, there was a time when Jim Carrey was on a show uh, doing an interview and he just married Lauren Hawley and he was on the show and he's doing all these uh, personations. And the guy was like, oh, my God, you're so brilliant. This. I bet Lauren loves these things. And he's like, oh, God, no, no. She said, absolutely no impersonations in the house. And immediately it was like, that's not a good sign. And then nine months later, they were divorced. <laughs> you know, it's you got to Where do you work? Right. Yeah. So I do, you know, it's like for some of my bits, I do this Trump impression and I'd been working on it. I was really, I didn't have one. I couldn't do Trump. And it's like, it's just going to go away. Just like a miracle. Just going to go away. And so I had to practice it and practice it. And I would practice it at home and it would drive my wife crazy. <laughs> oh, no. She goes, please don't do that. It makes <laughs> me sick to my stomach. And it's like, well, who else do I practice in front of? You know, and it's like, and it, uh, it gives me a chance at least to feel like I'm in a safe space as I'm trying a new impression. Yeah. Right. And but um, uh, I get it with Trump. But she also had the same thing with George W. You know, uh. didn't, she didn't like my thing at George W. <laughs> but when you did Obama, she was fine with it. I see how it is. I, I still haven't gotten an Obama <laughs> down, but I'm going to I'm going to work on it because I, I like the Obama pacing. Yeah. Uh, but um, and I'm not a big impressionist. I just do it once in a while. Right. You know, but but yeah, but. She's also, uh, she knows I'm not on all the time, uh, except when I'm practicing my voices, I'll do that whenever I can, uh, just to, just to practice them. Cause you have nowhere else to practice them. But, um, yeah, man, that's, that can be, but she's really good at listening to my jokes. Hmm. And in fact, um, one of the things that is special about my wife is when we were first dating, her parents didn't get to meet me yet. And we started to get serious. It started to get pretty serious. And um, uh, we could tell, and she was flying for an airline and she had me sign this thing and uh, to be a, a, her designated, um, uh, you know, significant other or whatever they call it, designated traveler. So I had free flights, nice. right? Yeah. And All which right. was very helpful in, in my business. And so, um, so, but her parents still hadn't met me. And so they found out I was doing this gig up in Portland and um, they were sending their best friends to come watch me and give them feedback, oh, right? you just out, to give yeah. a, you know, hey, I want you to meet this yeah. guy. And I said, oh, so my parents' best friends are coming to see you tonight. And, um, and they're going to, because they're going to wind up, they're going to ask him, hey, what's he like? And uh, I said, well, do you want me to change anything? She goes, you better not. Wow. And I went, Wow. That was that was telling. That was like just be you. Either they like you or they don't. But I did my yeah. thing, and they reported. And I said, well, well, did you get the feedback? Well, they got the feedback from my parents. They said, who? He's amazing. And uh, so they really <laughs> just being me. That taught me a big lesson of don't put on a different hat. Just be you. Because even if you're yeah. going to pitch a job somewhere, like when I pitch shows, I used to sort of wear the producer's hat and try to behave myself and be on my, you know. I said, and then screw that. I just go and be in me. I basically do a show, you know? Um, it's almost like doing a little stand-up as I'm pitching the show and they're laughing, having a good time. And I'm like, you either, in fact, 
my writing partner and I, this is how we made that discovery because he's on all the time. He's got that ability just to be uh. so present and he doesn't have a filter. And so that what like when, uh, you know, we went into a pitch, he was just on. And I was like, that's a lesson, man. Look how, how on he was and how we entertained them. And I'm trying to be the, I'm a producer. I'm a very serious businessman sort of thing. That's not cool. But it gave me so much freedom now just to be that. In fact, we pitched the show to Lifetime and they were like, wow, we love the, I would like you to come back and pitch it. I want to see some tent poles. So we brought in a tent <laughs> and an old tent with a in a canvas military bag with tent poles. And so when you dropped it, we dropped it on the floor. You hear the aluminum poles hit the ground. They were like, what's that? Tent poles. And they just start laughing. You go, <laughs> he said, you brought that bag just for the gag? Yep. <laughs> and they go, we love it, man. So um, now the show didn't get on, but they were like, you can come back and pitch a show anytime you want. So that relationship was built just by being ourselves and not changing. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because that's the same way it is in acting is that um, I, I forget who the, uh, um, there's a, uh, an acting coach. She has workshops, she's not an acting coach, but the whole workshop is just like, I, I get it. You're a serious actor and everybody's running around being, I can play anything. And she's like, and you're never going to work because as soon as you walk in the door, they see you and they're like, that's how you have to play. And she told the story about Danny DeVito and Taxi, which was the character that Danny DeVito played in Taxi originally had been written as like a 300 pound, six, eight massive bouncer. And somehow Danny DeVito got in there and they're like, what the hell is this? And he's like, I've got to show that I have the energy. And so he jumped up on the table and was literally like uh, hovering over them, screaming the lines at these people. And, and then they were like, that's the character because he was 100% himself. And I had a friend of mine who um, he, he, you know, being kind is a, a, a redneck and he just drove him crazy that he would go in and they, they he'd never get anything. And she's like, just be the redneck. And he hated it. And finally he's like, what do I have to lose? I'm almost I'm about ready to move home anyway. He started booking left and right and left. And he just works all the time now. Yeah, man. That's uh, so true. And it's a great lesson. Look at any Dreyfus film. Yeah. Richard Dreyfus. He's just Richard Dreyfus. Well, if you look at even the top, like the top A-listers, one of the, when, when I was acting, one of the biggest complaints was like, oh God, uh, Tom Cruise, he's always the same. Uh, Keanu Reeves, he's always the same. Jennifer Lawrence, she's always the same. Matthew McConaughey is always the same. I'm like, isn't it interesting? You have all these people trying to prove that they're the best actor. And, and, and there are some really great actors that are famous, but you look at the ones that are getting $20 million a movie and it's all the people who just play the best version of themselves over and over and over again. That's where Jim Carrey failed. Yeah. He started, he started being himself. taking himself as a serious actor. <clears throat> yep. and he's like, I'm going to just be a serious, I'm going to be more of a serious actor. Now I go, why? You know, because that, and all of a sudden, and you know, he was like, well, Truman show was really different. Really? You came out of the door and went, uh, uh, good morning, good afternoon and good night. With the you still had smile. your rubber face all right. over the place. So it's like blend that in and stay you. But the Truman Show didn't do as well as the mask or any or, you know, la, uh, the cable guy or anything like that. It was like um, they had a series of like three or four serious movies and they didn't do very well. Right. Exactly. Be yourself. And it's yeah. so people come to see you and they don't uh, eventually you, because you built a connection with that audience. And that's what they want to see. When Steve Martin did that thing at the New York Public Library, because they do these public events. Yeah. And he started talking about the history of art 
And they're like, we want wild and crazy guy. We came to see Steve Martin. That's not Steve Martin. And they wanted refunds. Yeah. So it's like you build this reputation, this brand, be that reputation and brand. And I realized that when I go up, I go up. That's how I found myself. When I first started doing stand-up, I was emulating Jerry Seinfeld. Oh. And I was like, you know, I, it, to the point where I was like, uh, I saw a sign that said positively, no smoking, as opposed to negatively, smoke, please. You know, it was like bad, right? <laughs> I did that. And Jerry Seinfeld actually ridiculed me at the Laugh Factory. And it was like, I got laughs. And I was more, I was more pseudo Seinfeld than I was. So you're trying to be Seinfeld and Seinfeld saw you trying to be him? Mm-hmm. And he... <laughs> And I got laughs uh, and I got, you know, there was a comedian on before me that I admired and he didn't do well. And I went up there and I said, wow, this audience must be tight. My first joke popped and I was like, oh, okay. And I was still doing my thing, but it's very pseudo Seinfeldian. And I saw him after standing near the bar and I go, oh, Jerry Seinfeld, hi. And he goes, whatever. <laughs> and that's when my New York turned on. I was kind of a dick. Uh, but he was a dick first. I said, don't, don't, don't ridicule me. You get personal. I'll meet you outside. <laughs> and it was like, back then I was like a hothead. I, you know, New Yorkers. Red. Are you gonna I don't bar? do that anymore. It's like, I've worked so hard to change that person. And, uh, but he, uh, um, but still Seinfeld was with the person I emulated. And like, you look at his career trajectory, he wrote five hours a day. Right. Yeah. So, um, but what I laugh about is he's got a new book and it's called, is this anything? Is this something? I think, is this any, it's called, is this any, anything? Meaning, is this, could this be funny? I said, well, Jerry, you should know. Jerry still crosses out 60 to 70% of the material he tries for the first time where George Carlin knew, he said with 98% accuracy, the joke was funny before he stepped on stage. I want to be a part of that school. Yeah. I heard you say something one time that uh, really stuck with me, which was in the world of comedy, everybody's like, oh, uh, everyone's my competition, but you have no competition because there is no you. Yeah, no there's other no other you. you. And that changed for me in my perspective in my career. Like it changed everything for me. I went into, uh, into auditions then going like, that was a competition. What are you talking about? It's like, that's me. It's so true. And in, in auditions, it's so important. I know so many actors and actresses that say, you know, I went in the audition. It was like, all these other people are obviously better suited for this role. Just go in and fucking be you, man. Just be you. You have to bleep that, don't you? Uh, just go in and be you. <laughs> And dang it. Now I have to mark this podcast as adult yeah. only. Oh. It's like, just be you, man. It, it, because it's so, when they see that freshness, all of a sudden they go, she's perfect. You're going to get cast for exactly what you're right for. And if you're a really good actor or actress, you're going to be cast for other things because they like you so much. They want to put you in their, in their show. And this just happened to one of my, key uh students and she's also a phenomenal actress and um she went up for an audition i kept telling her you're going to be cast for exactly what you're right for and you're so good you're going to even get other things because they think you're so good and so she went up for this she auditioned for this thing and she got this she got the role and she's playing a dead character that kind of comes back and the husband who lost his wife is like, I don't know if I can do this. This is, and she gives him the courage to keep doing what he's doing, raising their, their, their two kids and tell him he's doing a great job sort of thing. And boy, the camera just loves her angelic. And she's a good actress, really good actress. They loved her so much. They brought her back 
And I said, do you realize we talked about this? I said, we talked about this how many times? Just be you and you're going to be cast for what you write for. You went in there and you didn't really care much about doing this. You were like, ah, whatever. And you just were just so you and so present. They loved you. And then they loved you so much. They recasted you in another episode and you're dead. They had no plans to bring you back, and they did. Brought back the dead character. So, uh, so she was like, "You're right." I said, "Just be you. Stop trying to be something you're not, because then you just look awkward, you know." And it's like yep. when Carlin said to me, "Take the shit that drives you crazy, and make it funny." You ever read the newspaper, watch the news, and you call BS? I said all the time. He said, "Make that your comedy, but be funny." He said, "Here's a trick. You want a trick?" I said, always. He was like, um, raise, raise the bridge. Raise your eyebrows. Raise your eyebrows when you talk about the stuff that makes you mad. And you can't be mad. You can only see the absurdity in it. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my gosh, you're so right. And I'm still working on that. I still do this, right? But this, because if you do this, you're judging somebody else's ideals. Mm. And people don't want their ideals that they've grown up with to be judged. But if you do this and point it out, now they're open to looking at that side and go, it is kind of ridiculous. Oh my God, I do. I've been doing that all my life, you know? And it changes the entire perspective. Watch John Stewart. He did that all the time on The Daily Show, taking on some pretty tough issues, you know? And he just do this, how come, why are they doing this? And it became, that became the angle. So I, that is where I found the catharsis. That's where I found me being me and took on more sociopolitical uh, material and so I, I left that Seinfeldian stuff behind, but I, that was sort of my, I guess, my defense mechanism, right? Mm. To get up on stage. Hey, if I'm up here as, as sort of a pseudo Jerry Seinfeld, it's not me who's bombing, right? <laughs> you know, but learning how to write, write the jokes is what got me to have confidence going up so on let's stage. Let's talk about that. We started there and we went off on a tangent. Mm -hmm. So how did you... First off, how, how did you choose who to go to to begin with? And then how did what was the process that they took you through? Because what I love about the story that we're, we're about to go over is the fact that you were, were literally mentored by an old school comedian, like good old, yeah. like 50s, 60s golden era of Hollywood. Right. So this what this is what happened. I um, once I found out there's actually you can actually kind of write jokes. I got a book and the book says you should. Um, and it was like Gene Parrott was the, he's, was Bob Hope's head writer, also wrote for a lot of variety shows and uh, a lot of like, um, uh, he wrote the monologues for a lot of Emmys, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Emmy Awards, uh, Golden Globes, that sort of thing. Uh, so very prolific joke writer. And um, he also had a colleague that he trained uh, and he became his second. So he was like, I had two mentors, um, Gene and then Bob Mills. And, um, but what I, Saul was like, the, one of the things was he said, take Johnny Carson's monologue, transcribe it every night, transcribe it for just a week, two weeks in a row, and then go back and try to see if you can come up with better punchlines. What the transcribing by hand, longhand, all longhand, mm. because that muscle memory of writing the joke and feeling the rhythm and connecting that to your body was, is more important than writing it on the, on the screen on a computer. So at first I was doing all longhand stuff. And uh, it really did, I did connect with it. I tried my own punchlines. And then um, 
He said, then after two weeks of doing that, get up in the morning, look at the headlines and try to write your own jokes. Because now that voice is that rhythm is kind of in your head, right? So do you know what's interesting about that is that in the copywriting and marketing world, the guy who's considered the like greatest copywriter of all time, the way that he trained copywriters is for the first three to four weeks, he would sit them down and make them seven, eight hours a day, do nothing but copy winning sales letters out by hand. Wow. It's, it was magical for me. And then, because at least that gave me kind of a rhythm feel, but now then studying as I started to learn more about it and I, and I got into learn why people laughed and I really studied that. It was like taking that, those theories on the road and testing them in front of audiences mm. that really helped me to expand the, how many psychological laughter triggers there were. So what I was doing is I was look, investigating the, the brain science behind it. And I actually consulted with a neuroscientist who teaches at UC Irvine. Uh, and we had, he was fascinated by, he came to one of the classes and goes, wow, you're talking about a lot of stuff that's already in the neuroscience field. Have you, do you study neuroscience? He goes, no. I said, no. He said, why do you know this? I said, it's just my theory. And he goes, wow, but that's actual science. And he said, oh, I said, we should, he said, we should talk more. And so we started to send emails back and forth and talk about, you know, I had questions. He would like give me the neuroscience part of it. I was like, wow, this is fascinating. So um, anyway, so I was, when I, when I started to do the, the headlines from, uh, from Johnny Carson, the current events jokes, I started writing those. And I said to my dad, I said, I want to write for the Tonight Show. This is fun. I love this. And he said, well, you got to get a coach. And I was like, Dad, there's no coaches for comedy. That's not how it works. So I got a coach. Um, what happened was he, um, he said, you know, I, my mom gave me a Writer's Digest magazine. And in the back of the magazine was an ad for, you know, a joke writing correspondence course or comedy writing correspondence course. And it was from Gene Parrott. So wow. I, I basically wrote a letter and, uh, so, you know, applied to the, be, a, be a correspondent student. He said, and this is what it, it costs per week or per month. And so I did it and we started corresponding. And I said, um, is there any way we can do private coaching one-on-one? -on -one? You know, because as a trombone player, I always took lessons and it was always in with a, you know, expert trombone player. And so he said, where do you live? I said, Chatsworth. He says, I'm just in Studio City. You're 20 minutes away. Why don't we do that? That would be fun. So we went and we, we would meet and we'd go over stuff for about two hours. And then, it, you know, he'd send me home and have me do work. And he was really tough on me. And, but it was that accountability every week. And back then it was $125 every week. And I had to get a second job because I told my dad, hey, you're going to help me with this, right? He says, get, a, get another job, get a second job to pay for it. And I said, dad, you told me wow. to get a coach. I did. He was like, son, let me tell you this. If you work, you have to get a second job and work your ass off to make that money so that you can pay for these lessons, you'll pay, you'll put more effort into the lessons. Trust me. And I was like, oh, damn, man, but boy, he was right. <laughs> he was so right because I was work. I was working graveyard shifts at a Denny's so I could pay for these wow. lessons um, and so how was he hard on you? Oh, he would make, he would bust my ass. And he would like, he, he would berate me sometimes. He goes, man, I know chicks who can write better than you. <laughs> and there were no women in comedy writing at the time. 
you know, so <laughs> it's like they all, but I, I felt insulted because I have three sisters and a mom and it's very feminist house. So it's like, yeah, that's <laughs> not right to say, come on, there's, but I still took it as an insult, but I reframed it. Hey, if these old fuckers can do it, I can do it. Right. And I was like, and that works for me, but still yeah. that chick thing got in my head. I said, no, my sisters are funny and funnier than me. Right. So I was like, I'll, I'll, I'll be damned if I let that happen. And so I really applied myself, man, I would work and work and work. And I realized that the more I practiced and with the expert feedback coming from him, this guy with all this knowledge who wrote, you know, he basically got me, pushed me. First, it was getting to 10 jokes a day was hard. And I didn't think I'd reach 10, 10 jokes yeah. a day. And then he pushed me past that 20, 30. I hit 30 and I peaked. I just pee. I couldn't break that. And then all of a sudden floodgates opened. I had 40 and then went to 60 and then in that, and then had a plateau and I pushed farther. And he says, and I was like 80 to 120. And he says, once we get jokes you to day. 80 to 120 jokes a day, nobody can fire you. In about 18 months of every week, every week, every week, every week. And then putting, putting me to the, you know, you know, uh, when I would make simple mistakes, they would really let me know and know, and, and, you know, it was just like, you can't do this. That's an amateur. He said, when you're at that level, you're, you're going to be with the best of the best. You know, and what I didn't realize is there, most of these joke writers are writing 25 to 40 jokes a day. And top I was guys. Yeah, top guys. And I was pumping out 80 to 120. And then they were like, how do you write all these jokes? There's not enough time. Well, and that's funny because I, I had a class in L.A. where the person that was it was a comedy class who was saying that if you just wrote one joke a week at the end of the year, you'd have 300 jokes. And look how farther ahead you would. One joke a day, like one joke a day. And that was Judy Carter. Right. And, uh, yeah. you know, I love Judy and anybody who helps try to help, help try to help comedians and learn. I, you know, I sh shout outs to them. But when you, but why restrict yourself? Yeah. Because if you're now one joke a day, that's you want to get there. When you get there, it feels really good. But why stop? Because if you're now writing three, five, ten jokes a day, every time you write a joke, every time you're writing volumes of joke, you're actually getting better at doing it. Yeah. And then you're getting faster on stage because now you're writing in your head because you're it's like playing scales and playing the piano. And they play a piece and they play a piece and they master. They play, they can do it with their with a blindfold on. That's where you want to be with your comedy writing. So now you're doing it on the on the run, and and you know people they give you a word and you can take a word one word and make it funny, and you show them how to do that. There's a process to everything, and the thing is the key is, is there is a process to joke writing, and so that's what helped me get to that volume of jokes because wow. when you have the process and you learn how to take a sentence and what sentence is actually rich for for a joke to to write a joke with. Then you know, because like if you have a, a statement and you say that statement has two dissimilar ideas converging, that's going to give me the opportunity to write some jokes about this because then I can take those two dissimilar ideas and build associations for each of those ideas. And now I can, you know, have a joke. And you could take something absolutely from nothing and build a statement that has two associative ideas. And then you could, you know, create jokes out of that. And when people see that, when they learn that, they go, oh, wait a minute. I can do this. So you 
wanted to write for the tonight show your dad told you to get a coach you get a coach you work on it eventually you do go to work for the tonight show what was it like being part of a writer's room for somebody at that caliber oh that was a i gotta tell you i haven't been in a lot of different writers rooms and um, when i uh did leno it was at first i was a contributor but i was contributing 100 jokes a day and so i would fax them in and they had a fax that was thermal paper so that thing would run and run and run. They thought the thing was broken and my jokes would show up. And then that, so that got me the reputation every single day without error, I would write a hundred jokes. And so they eventually they would have to take notice and they did. And then they asked me to come in. And at first I turned them down because I was on the road touring. I, I'm not going to go in an office. I'm free, you know? And then, um, didn't they stop and say, wait, you're writing a hundred jokes a day and you're on the road touring mm -hmm. right now. So I, I would talk the jokes into my recorder too, as I was driving. So, um, and then after I got to, you know, and I got fatigued trying to track all that stuff in my head, then I'd sit down and actually write at lunch breaks and whenever I stopped to eat and they get to the next town and do the show and then go in the hotel room and just write, 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 write. And then, um, and I had that modem in my laptop that would just fax and uh, I would fax it to the Tonight Show and they'd get the jokes and, but it was like, then I was also testing the theories as I was doing that. I'd go do shows. Oh, they laughed at that. Here, that theory worked. And I'd go back and take notes on that as well. So I was kind of building that whole wow. Carlin in my ear, figure it out and then tell everybody. Um, so uh, then when I got, they finally, I uh, got back into the, I got into the staff rooms at the, the Tonight Show. And it was so interesting. It's like, I, um, the head writer didn't like me. And because I was turning in a hundred jokes a day, 120 sometimes, right? So the 120 days were fewer than the 80 days, but you know, it'd be, or 80 jokes a day, but it'd be like, there was a, a volume of, I would just come in with all this material to the pitch meeting. You know, you go, you write by yourself, you come in and you pitch your jokes. These guys would have 20, 25 jokes, 28 jokes. I'd come in and have 80 jokes. Okay, here's Jerry. And be like, and they'd be like, how do you do all these jokes? And um, so the head writer got wind of somebody in the in the coffee room saying something positive about me. I don't know how he does it. He has got this. He's got a system, and but it works, man. He he can pound out jokes, and he knows how to fix a joke. And it's like they were talking about that. Now keep in mind, it was also how a writer's form I was doing at the Friars Club on Monday nights. Um, and that's when I would do, I would, you know, help people with their jokes. And that's where they gave me the name, the joke doctor, these veterans be like, I was wow. going to throw that joke away and you fixed it. How do you know that it needed that? You know? And uh, I was like, well, it just, you didn't give us enough information at the setup and you had it in your head, but we didn't have it. So when you say the punchline, we didn't know there was this, that was there. So just say it in the setup, but that's giving away the joke. Not if it's an associative joke, it doesn't have to be a surprise. And they would go, wait a minute, what? I thought all jokes had to be a surprise. And these guys have been comedians for 25 years. These are like some pretty big names. And so they started, I'd walk in for the, you know, the Monday night thing. We'd have dinner and we'd go write jokes in this room. And um, they, I walk in, they go, hey, the joke doctor is here. Nice. And then that would, 
that kind of started to catch on. And that's where Joke Doctor came from. I didn't name myself that. It only took you 25 years, but they stopped saying, hey, Jerry. Mm, right. They started, hey, Jerry, what's the story? <laughs> good call back there, Travis. That's good. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I'm listening. See? Um, so how, you were with the, the Tonight Show for eight years. Mm -hmm. And at what what stage in your career did you start working on your book? Because that's why I have you on here. You have a book called Breaking Comedy's DNA, which is the, the manifesto, the comedy Bible, the first person to break comedy down into a, a, a formula that anyone can really follow. So when did that, obviously Carlin planted that in your brain, yeah, I but would when did say, you sit down and- I was the first. I would say that- um, No, you didn't um, say you were first. I did. So oh, see, so, no, so but it was like there were like um, Steve Allen tried to he came out with a book and tried to show people. And it's it, I didn't the book doesn't make sense to me. Um, Gene, Parrot, neuroscience. Gene, Gene Parrott, step by step, comedy joke writing, step by step. He had a, he has a good book, but he kind of gets into layers. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Melvin Hellitzer had a book called Comedy Writing Secrets. Now, Melvin is a journalism professor at the University of Ohio. And he started teaching a comedy class and it had a two-year waiting list. Wow. And what he did was he took Gene's book and broke it down and investigated the theories uh, from a journalist's perspective. Because, wow. you know, journalists are investigative reporters, right? They, they learn the same methods that detectives use. So they started asking the why and the how. Yeah. Who, what, where, why, when, and how. And so he put together a pretty good book, but... <clears throat> he was still a little hokey in his jokes. Now, why that book was not found so regularly, it was in the reference section of Barnes and Noble. <laughs> oh, that's and funny. so I got that book and I was like, well, wait a second, there's all this other stuff. And then he had this sort of a, a psychologist. She actually had some reasons, psychology, psychological reasons people laugh. And you see it in my book, I compare her list to my list. And my list is a little bit different but there are some similarities between the two, but that opened my eyes too. I said, I've got to investigate this fur further. And teaching the class gave me an opportunity then to see, do experiments with an audience, basically. If I had 15 people in a class, I'd be able to try something and they would laugh and I'd go, oh, okay. And I'd walk them through why that worked. And uh, so what happened was I was touring pretty much 43 weeks out of every year because I got fired from Leno. Wow. And I'm not allowed to talk about the reasons why, because I have an NDA. Uh, but uh, I wrote a Pope joke the day the Pope died. And um, you wrote a Pope joke? The day the Pope died, Joe Pope John Paul II. And it was just because nobody else was going to write a joke. And I said, I'm going to write a joke. And because um, <laughs> it was like, you know, I don't know if you remember the old Yahoo, it used to have this great section for news. And that's where I would get most of the headlines for my jokes. And then, um, they always had this red headline. The red headline would be there, and that was the big story. And the red headline, right above the the, the body of the, right in the middle of the and the web page, it would always say what the big story was. And it kept saying the Pope's in grave condition. The Pope's in grave condition. Refresh. The Pope's in grave condition. And then I refreshed once that Pope's dead, and I went, I got to write a joke, because first of <laughs> all, it's sad, and I don't want to be sad. So my first thing is, my coping mechanism is humor. So How do I get a write a joke? Because nobody else is going to do this. And that was one of the things in The Tonight Show. I would always take the headlines that didn't already have the possibility of funny blaring out at you because that's the easiest one. I would yep. take the ones that you had to work a little harder at to create the jokes for. And um, 
because nobody else would come up with that at the table. You'd hear a lot of the same subjects and then I'd come up with stuff. They'd be like, wow, where did you get that? Um, but so it took, you know, what can I do to be noticed more? What can I do to be noticed? And so when I did that, did the joke just at the table for the guys, Jay was going through a bit of a religious re renaissance. His dad was dying. And so that's when I was, I did a joke and it was not appropriate. Uh, so Catholic background, Boston, Jay was like, um, you're fired. So he just thought it was so disrespectful. And it wasn't a disrespectful joke. It was basically, you know, Pope, uh, uh, Pope died today. And, um, you know, the, uh, John Paul, uh, uh, Pope John Paul is a, fa a fabulous man, a very committed man. I mean, committed to his faith. You know, it's like, um, but, uh, and it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew, you're a Christian, you're Catholic, you're a Mormon, you cannot deny the commitment the man had to his faith. It's amazing. And um, I said, but he died. And the New York Times had a story that said, um, tens of thousands of people are praying for the Pope. And I would do this as a, in, in, with my Leno impression, you know, tens of thousands of people are praying for the Pope. Like, what, what are they praying for? That he'll go to heaven? Because if, if the Pope needs that kind of help to get to heaven, the rest of us are screwed. <laughs> Which is a great joke. Gonna have to bury me in no Mex coveralls, you know? And I would do the, I do the play with my ring, like the Leno, I do my Len, I would do that with all my jokes to see if they were written in a Jay Leno voice. Wow. And so I did that and that really turned him off because he was, I guess. And besides the head writer hated me because there's, there's just a mm -hmm. bit of politics involved. Yeah, but, of course. You know, I got to tell you. Wait, jealousy in Hollywood for people who have talent. This happens. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> I have no hard feelings about it. You know, I got to tell you out of from the feedback I get from other writers, that was the most efficient writer's room. In all of late night television i think they knew the joke when the jokes were funny and they knew they had super confidence and so there was not a lot of hemming and hawing and you know this this stress right before the light goes on and 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 where you know he's like um where where you know people are like, oh we don't have enough material and because i remember hearing stories about letterman and they were like we needed one more joke to fill the slot i said what do you mean you need one writers are going on air right yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like, right as they're going on our, we need a new, we need a joke to fill the slot and be like, no, we'd have tons of jokes. We had to whittle them down to 12 so that he could do now with, there were like 28 because Leno's monologue was longer then. And, um, and then one time I remember Jay berated me. He started, I, he started to, cause his head writer was his best friend and he started to like the, the barking in his ear all the time. He started to, I noticed his like, attitude towards me changed a little bit and one time I, I did a joke and the joke is using a technique called the paired phrase and I just call it paired element now um, paired elements because there's so many different versions of the paired phrase uh, that you kind of have to break them down into these to show the different versions of how they work and um, this one's called phrase matching and what it the joke goes like this this is a uh, Presidents uh, Obama, Clinton, and Bush are getting together to raise money for the earthquake victims in Haiti, but they're going under the pseudonyms of Hope, Grope, and Dope. <laughs> now, I pitched that uh, joke at the table, and uh, the staff laughed. They loved the joke, and one of the guys thought, great joke, and I said, I said, that'll get an applause break, and Jay was like, how do you know? How do you, you can't tell me you, you know what the audience is going to do. The audience is always the final judge. It's like, you can't tell me. That's so arrogant. And he said, well, arrogance or confidence, Jay. It's, 
it's like I'm not saying the audience is always the final judge, and I'm always humbled if I do a joke and it gets a flat line. It's going to happen, and I'm you know there I'm there to deliver the gift for them. They're the ones who tell me whether or not they approve. I know that inherently. I said, but I have high confidence it's going to get an applause break. He's like, that you can't tell me it's going to. I said, I'll bet you. I'll bet you one of your cars. <laughs> That's ridiculous, and he never took the bet. And so, but that night when that joke came around, everybody looked at me. We're all standing. We stand beyond the cameras, right? Oh, so he decided to go ahead with the joke anyway. He did the joke. Applause break. Because of the layers. One, we have what a coincidence that Obama, Clinton, and Bush line up with such perfect words. Hope for Obama, grope for Clinton, (laughs) dope for Bush. And... Because Bush has, you know, had calendars coming out with the, the dumb things he said, yeah. you know, but still after Trump, everybody's like, oh, man, bring Bush back. <laughs> yeah. and what I loved about Bush was he, Bush looks he actually, like a genius now. He actually had videos out there going, do you miss me? <laughs> <laughs> so it was funny because, you know, he he felt it, too. And and in reality, people didn't a lot of people don't know that he and Clinton or dad, especially his dad and Bill Clinton were besties. They were best friends. They talked to each other every day on the phone. So. He was like part of their family. In fact, when they took a family picture and Clinton was there, um, uh, Bush Sr. said, Bill, get in here, your family. And so uh-huh. I was like, wow, that opened my eyes to the, the politicians, how they, how they, uh, politics is their game, but that doesn't stop them from sitting down, having a beer or yeah. being, you know. Well, that was the thing I thought was funny is it, where, where was it at the, um, was it Bush Sr. funeral and Bush Jr. was sitting next to Obama's wife and they were laughing and joking and people were like, she's a traitor. How could she talk to the enemy? And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, that's the way everyone should be in politics. Right. Like, are you kidding and it, me? And she was, so there was a time where she had a candy or he reached over and offered her a candy, yeah. you know, and they, and he, she took the candy and it's like, um, they had, a, they, there was a friendship. Also, he had a thing for Michelle, you know, <laughs> He was a, there's on the inside of the beltway, there are some things that uh, people don't know about him and Condoleezza Rice, Um, but um, that who cares, you know? Um, But they, anyway, so that there's politics and everything. And I remember after I got fired um, uh, that I uh, was going off the lot at the Tonight Show. I had tears in my eyes. I was, that was such a neat gig to reach and get. But I called my friend over at, um, David Letterman, and I told him I got fired. He said, they fired you? He's like, you're the guy who pumps out all the jokes. And he goes, um, what happened? I said, I, d- I wrote a Pope joke. He goes, you know, the Pope died today. And I said, I know, I know that. He goes, what was the joke? And I told him the joke. He goes, holy shit, can Dave use that? I said, you want to pitch that to Dave? He said, I'm going to try. We got a huge Catholic population here. It's going to create enormous tension. And then when you get to the punchline, it's such a, like, you know, it ingratiates the Pope. You know, he said, well, this guy's, he should be, that door should be already open for him, you know? And they did the joke. And it got a, and it got a big laugh and applause. Wow. But they were like, that's, a, that was a nice tribute because people were like, what? And it goes, uh, he's like, come on, if the Pope John Paul needs that kind of help to get to heaven, he goes, the rest of us are screwed. Really? He's like the perfect guy, you know? <laughs> and they were funny, all like, that almost seems like a better fit for Letterman anyway, though, mm-hmm. with his personality. Yeah. Two, uh, two and a half weeks later, I got a call and they offered me a job at uh, Letterman and I had to turn it down. My dad was like, 
I know you're excited about this, son, but you love this stuff so much that you'll be in New York and you won't see your kids. Mm. And I was like, oh man, he's right. I love this stuff so much that I'd be just obsessed with work and I wouldn't have the time to come spend that. Nope, I wasn't going to do that trade-off. You know, and it was like, um, that's when my son, I got full custody of my son after that. That was the sign, right? I made that choice. A couple of years later, a judge gives me full custody of my 15-year-old son. Um, and, um, and that was it. Once I had that full custody, I couldn't be on the road 43 weeks out of every year. I had to, you know, you can't do it anymore. Yeah. So that's when I started to, so people at the Friars Club, at the Writers Forum kept saying, you should teach this, you should teach this. And I had no desire to teach it. And they said, you're already teaching it. And one guy set up a, he said, I'm going to set up a, 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 a joke writing seminar one day free and see what kind of people show up for it. And then I'm just going to teach some of the stuff I've learned from you. I said, yeah, all right, that sounds fun. Go ahead. So he did, and he called me the night before with uh, laryngitis. He said he had strep throat and laryngitis. He could, couldn't teach this thing. He had just set up, there's 40 people coming and I don't want to let him down. Could you fill in for me? <laughs> and I said, oh, sure, man. And I was like, really concerned about it. You sound horrible. Get some rest, dude. Um, is there something? Yeah, I'm going to have Ann, my wife, meet you with the keys and uh, for the, the space. And here it is. And get, just go down there and do it. So I did. 40 people were there, 42. And um, they were writing jokes in an hour. And um, that he, was the birth of the stand-up comedy clinic. Yeah, he walked in like an hour, you know, an hour and a half into my three-hour seminar, and he goes, "How's it going?" I go, "What happened to your voice?" He goes, "Dude, it was a ruse. I knew you would love this." And I was like, "How do you know me better, better than I know me?" I, and they were like, to see people's eyes light up, and they go, "I just wrote a joke. Oh my god!" And get a laugh. I was like, "Holy shit, that's amazing!" And then that was the birth of the school. Yeah. Well, I want to respect your time. I know we've, we've gone a little bit over here, but if, if people want to learn more about what you do, especially for anyone listening, uh, Breaking Comedy's DNA is the most amazing book you'll read in terms of comedy. Where can people go to get that? They can Google. It's an ebook, and we're getting it. We're doing the, we had a thing with a publishing house. They got bought by somebody else. So uh, eventually it's going to come out in hardback, but right now it's an ebook and it's online. Uh, they can just Google Breaking Comedy's DNA. Um, and, uh, or they can go to the website and you'll see the picture of the book, uh, up there at the, in the header, um, and that's standupcomedyclinic.com. Right. And then, uh, they can go check that out, um, and read the book and then they can get, if they want, they can, now I do the personal one-on-one -on -one coaching with people. And what's great is now we're like, I actually am coaching professionals on how to use this in their business, right? I, I worked with uh, the Kaiser doctors and showed them how to use humor in their clinic visits and um, worked with John Hancock and I'm showing financial advisors how to improve their openings and how to use a sense of humor to create more of a bond and a relationship with their customers. So it's like, that's cool. And the feedback I'm getting is positive. If it wasn't good feedback, that's when I would be, all right, well, that's not serving its right purpose. Well, because you're you're breaking this, you know, century year old, the, the millennia year old uh, belief system that, you know, you can't be, you can't teach funny. You've just naturally got to be that way. And you're breaking that down and letting people realize like, oh, with this funny human language, English language, there's lots of things you can do. Just rearranging some words and suddenly something that was very boring is hilarious. Exactly. Right. 
So for those people listening who may be in comedy, what would what do you recommend in terms of a uh, like a, a writing habit if, if somebody's serious about becoming a better uh, comedy writer? Well, it depends. You know, people like to talk about stuff that's outside of them, or they like to talk about stuff that's inside of them from their own personal experience. There's two there are two types of people. Most people that uh, some people like to talk about everything outside of them. Jerry Seinfeld, George Carlin were that way. Uh, Bill Cosby liked to talk about his own personal life. And what I would say is like, you start by writing, just writing facts about you and then take one of those sentences and take one of those sentences and, a, and if they look at Breaking Comedy's DNA, they'll be able to see it, take a sentence and go, oh, wait a second, does it, a, you know, does it create an assumption? Is there an assumption here that I can shatter? Is there like, uh, when I first started losing my hair, uh, I remember it used to bug me a little bit like in the mornings when my wife was running her fingers through my hair, but I already left for work you know so the pillow was having a good time um so but uh you know you get a picture in that thing and what's the image what what is the image what is there is there an expected uh, expectation is there an image in that sentence if there is you can flip it you know i remember the first time i'm i'm surprised my wife got together my wife and i got together at all because when i first met her she was just so pregnant and um that's not usually my type so that's brian Kiley. Right. And that's his that's one of the that's a great example of a joke of just taking the truth, putting the truth on the page and then seeing if you could change that last word. Because that first way it first went was I'm surprised my wife and I met at all because got together at all. Because when I first met her, she was so beautiful. Like she was out of my league. And then he went so um, pregnant. And, you know, that is a great reverse. Right. So. Uh, that's one thing you can do. That's just one technique. Then there's the double entendre and then there's the incongruity and that's just scratching the surface. But with those three, you can write forever. And these are all these other techniques as well, because there's 13 major comedy structures that you can utilize. And you can find those in your book. So when you mm -hmm. were on the road writing then, what, how did you, did you have like a, like just sort of a list of exercises you'd go through, like somebody going to the gym and doing their sets yeah. and reps. Yeah. yeah. So when, it, when I have those facts down there, like I do this with headline jokes or I do this when I notice an observation, I'll write the observation down. Or if there's a headline joke, I'll write down the line. Then I ask it three questions. One, is there a double entendre play? Meaning, is there an implied meaning of a word I can turn to the comedic meaning of the word? Like I was watching the uh, uh, watching a press conference after a, a horrible game from the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers one time, and the uh, journalist says to the coach, "Hey, coach, how do you feel about the execution of the offense?" And he's like, "I'm all for it." <laughs> and that was like, you know, taking the uh, the meaning of execution, uh, which the implied meaning was how do they run their plays, and then say, "Just kill them all because they're not doing me any good." <laughs> um, so. That's another way to, so that's double entendre. And then the second one, if there's not double entendre present, then you can go to, um, is there an expectation, an assumption or an image that's created that I can shatter? And then you could try, then you try to shatter that image. If that's not present, you can say, are there two, dis two or more dissimilar ideas converging in this statement? And odds are out of those three questions, you're gonna find something. And then if you don't, there's other ways to then add that secondary element by using an analogy and there's other techniques too. So, but with those three, that's the start, right? That's and enough. then you can start pumping out a lot of jokes 
And then, yeah. So well, I think like, this is great because I mean, earlier you mentioned you, at one point in time, Jerry Seinfeld was sitting down and for five hours a day writing comedy. And I think most people would be like, I wouldn't know what to write about for five hours. But when you have a formula, which you can find in your book, that's easy to do. So, and sometimes, you know, sometimes like you like to write the story. I'll say, oh, you know, I should tell the story about when my wife had to have her C section and I'll write the events. And then when I go back and write the events, every sentence becomes a setup line, possibly, right? Mm -hmm. And I can do ask the same questions to each one of the sentences. Wait, you mean you can write comedy just like writing the facts of like, here's what actually happened and then make it funny? Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> Who knew it could be so difficult? Oh my is God. It, is, it, is this anything? <laughs> yes, yeah, you anything? should know. You yeah. should know. 40 years of telling jokes and you don't know? Right. Well, Jerry, thanks again for your time. I've certainly appreciated it. Thanks, Travis. Great to see you, man. Hey, it's Travis Cody. Thanks for listening to The Just Right Show, and I want to make sure you're plugged into everything we've got going on. Go to traviscody.com forward slash show and join the email list so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Plus, you can find links to the transcripts of every episode we've done in the past. You can also grab a free copy of my best-selling books that share even more details on how you can up-level your own writing skills. Finally, if you enjoyed the show, I'd consider it a personal favor if you'll leave me a review on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode.